Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Join us also at Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you'll find commentary on my uh, musical work and uh, just the things that have inspired me. You'll also get access to exclusive um, early uh, movie reviews, usually for older reviews, uh, the most recent of which was Alan J. Pasula's All the President's Men. You'll get access to those before they come up on Sonic Cinema. You'll also see uh, videos with regards to specific film commentary, as well as uh looking ahead at the book that I'm looking to release, and that is uh, patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. I'm pleased to be joined today by a fellow composer, actually, and a film composer. Uh, his brother did a, an interview for the podcast uh, last week, and we are actually I'm actually going to be releasing both of these on the same time. And uh, they are part of Albino Fawn Films, and they have worked on Apocalypsis, The Glitch in the Grid, and Imaginations. And please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Leister to the podcast. I'm pleased to be joined today by a composer uh, for several films as well as um, some individual uh Albums, I believe. Uh, he, his brother actually was on the is on the podcast as well, and uh, they are together. They make up Albino Fawn Films, and uh, their work includes Imagination, The Glitch in the Grid, and most recently, Apocalypsis. And I'm pleased to be joined today by Jeffrey Leiser. Jeffrey, thank you for joining me today. It's great to talk to you. So um, as, as a uh, composer myself, I was really interested in uh, doing this uh, interview when Eric uh, brought up last week. And uh, I, I just, what, what inspired you to get into music? I didn't know I had any sort of musical ability until I was around 12, which is still pretty young, but mm -hmm. um, a little older than some kids who just kind of start taking lessons yeah. really early. Um, I, I I suppose it really can be connected to TV and film because there was one time where a theme so show, sorry, song for a TV show was playing. I, it was like Doogie Howser. <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, I walked over to my mom's piano because my mom plays piano, although I didn't have an interest at that point. And I was able to articulate the entire theme in the correct key off the top of my head. And then my brother ran in, uh, my brother Eric, uh, the filmmaker, and he was like, Jeff can play out of nowhere. You know, um, he encouraged me a lot from there to start exploring that aspect. My mom as well, but I think uh, my brother was instrumental in uh, making me believe that I had an ability in music. Uh, he was already interested in art. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it was uh, sort of a toss-up. I mean... I didn't know whether to get a bass guitar or a piano or keyboard when I eventually got my first electronic keyboard when I was around 15, and I chose the keyboard. It was could it was a toss up, but I, then I really fell in love with it around the beginning of high school and I started composing music 
almost every night just to play it for my brother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, have like this blue light and it'd be like dark and atmospheric. And I just sort of get into that mood. And um, that's what all began really was, was that um, kind of strange uh, realization that I could, I had almost perfect pitch. I don't claim to have hundred percent perfect pitch, but uh, I'm pretty good at, you know, mm-hmm. calling key keys out and intervals and things like that. What what was yeah. it that uh what was it that inspired you to go into uh composing? Composing uh you mean for film or just for personal? Just in general. Yeah, um, I always uh, it's funny how it began with the theme show song uh because I quickly re- uh went the self I went self-taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom did give me basic lessons in theory. Um but I was, I very quickly just started making up songs from the song she was trying to teach me. And it got to be probably frustrating for her, but also liberating for me where I, I just wanted to create my own themes and I always had melodies in my head. So the more I explored that, the more melodies just came out. Hmm. And I think that's the first, the first step of being a composer is coming up with melodies. The harmonic structure I think comes with age and uh, experience. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but just having ideas off the top of my head, even if they were just very simple, uh, inspired me. So I'd say in and of itself, it wasn't actually tied to specific composers. There were, along the way, I, I heard things that were inspiring to me and that were in the film music realm, um, you know, feature film scores, and things like that we could talk about. Um, mm. uh, but as far as the influence itself, for me, it's a very personal experience. It was a way to get emotions out especially from high school, those difficult times you're trying to figure out who you are. And, um, for me, it was tapping into that not only emotional, but spiritual realm. I, I do credit like my relationship with God, uh, with I, the pulling ideas or just having inner inclinations from a very deep place that I can express, uh, sort of like the, the soul speak or the language of the soul, um, yeah, sort of communication with the divine. Um, and that was always something I was very kind of pure and innocent to me. So drawing from deep experiences, even if they were just things I was imagining, kind of was part, a great part of my formation as a composer and a person. So for me, it's that sort of emotional aspect of, of music, um, the intangible aspect of it, that, that of why I'm a composer, just yeah. because I, it feeds my soul and I feel connected, feel connected to God that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who who are uh, who are some of your favorite composers? Um, I would say uh, in the realm of film music, I did very early uh, discover you know Hayao Miyazaki's films like before they came to were before they were dubbed in English. Yeah, uh, Joe Hisaishi, the composer of many of those films, was uh, I don't know he he influenced uh, me and. Maybe not as, as much of a direct way, like I want to totally copy his style or, mm-hmm. or or copy his melodies, but the way he, how expressive he was with music, he he took from uh, sort of like I don't know post-romantic composers and made it his own with in his imaginative, sprightly way. Like really, he was uh, his orchestration was a little bit more complex than your average film score. So Joe Hisaishi is. That's yeah. sort of like his. He named himself that because he liked Quincy Jones a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he's a great composer, and Danny Elfman is an amazing composer who uh, I was exposed to pretty early as well. Because 
when my brother was getting into films, you know, like Tim Burton films and uh, yeah. other sort of uh, early early uh, exposure to things that were a little bit off the beaten path, even though they're still in the American to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and Danny Elfman's a similar thing where he's just really fun. He, he didn't mind breaking rules because he also was sort of self-taught. Um, and uh, he was, he'd already been a rock music star from Bongo Bongo, but yeah. he, what he did to transition the film music was incredible. Mm-hmm. So those, those two guys, I think influenced a lot of people like me who wanted to become film composers later. Um, and then I started watching a lot more independent foreign cinema and was exposed to, you know, other, other sort of film artists that are still famous, you know, in films like, um, like Nina Rota for, uh, you know, Bellini's film yeah. and, uh, uh, just a lot of, uh, classic. Uh, I also like the, the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, there's so many composers out there, but, mm-hmm. uh, I really, I really like that almost big band, uh, mm. beautifully orchestrated, beautiful strings, uh, yeah. classic Hollywood. Uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't say my style reflects that, but sometimes I'm more inspired by the moods and feelings they generate, even if it's not in my exact realm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that said, I don't have a ton of, a ton of influences, influence, like, sorry, influences I can point to just because I don't go deep with one composer necessarily. I sort of, base it more on the projects they do and um as a filmmaker not just a composer i i sometimes am even more inspired by films that have little to no music mm-hmm. if they're if it creates the right mood and sparks the imagination oh yeah uh, that's, so i, I yeah. yeah no go ahead that's about it i mean yeah i mean i never really i never what i'm saying is i guess i never obsessively listened to music mm-hmm. um actually to mention it right now um Throughout high school, I didn't listen to any music at all because I had this like idea <laughs> that I wanted to find something totally, truly original. And mm-hmm. um, even if it was within like that realm of music that sounds like film music, uh, and I slowly, I slowly started listening to music after that. But I was very staunch, like almost religious about it, like about not listening to anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it helped at least clarify, at least to clarify what my natural inclinations and style is, even yeah. if I was unconscious, unconsciously um, pulling things. Uh, it was just sort of that, that rugged individualist, you know, thing, artists, you know, that, that sort of mythology of the American artist or any artist that mm-hmm. is playing to the beat of their own drum or, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, okay. I definitely, I definitely understand what you're saying in all of those respects. Cause I mean, as, and I almost went the opposite direction, where it's like I once I once I fell into film music, I fell hard, and it's like I started yeah. like composers, John Williams, James Horner, Hans Zimmer, all all of those yeah. composers. Like Hans Zimmer is my favorite film composer of all time. I I love mm. the I I love the soundscapes that he does. I love I I love the way he uses synthesizers along with orchestral instruments. I just just the the atmospheres and the moods that he's able to um bring forth in his scores has just always uh been inspiration for me and uh mm-hmm. so i i almost went in the opposite direction where it's like i when especially when i first started composing and it's like this is this is like 20 years since i started composing this year and i'm going back and listening to 
some of my earlier pieces, and it's like so much of it is inspired by music I was listening to at the time. And it wasn't that I was trying to actively... It, it wasn't necessarily that I was trying to actively copy it, but it was like I was trying to... I I don't necessarily have perfect pitch. I, I didn't necessarily... I wasn't self-taught necessarily as as mm. as a musician. So I I sort of... It, it was a process, but I knew I wanted to compose. I knew I wanted, I knew I had something in me that I had to release in that respect. Yeah. And it's like there was something, yeah. there was something musically that I, that just performing music just wasn't enough for me. And sure. so, yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, Miyazaki's composer. Absolutely, like Princess Mononoke and Spirit of Way are two of my favorite scores from those respective Absolutely. years. Absolutely, yeah. They're just so beautiful. Um, mm. So yeah, it's it's, and that's part of the reason why I was so interested in uh, talking to you because of the fact that it's like I I know musicians, I know composers, but it's like being able to have that conversation about like share about influences and stuff like that. Now, as I went along, I did start to, I I really did develop my own, uh, my own personal, my own sound, my own my own, uh, my own distinct aesthetics as a composer, and I was less inspired by specific pieces or scores I was listening to, and more just, uh, well, okay, this is like. Several years ago, I like 14, 15 years ago, I did an album of music inspired by Ennio Morricone's Spaghetti Western. And yeah. it doesn't mm. sound like it doesn't sound like Morricone. It really it doesn't have that distinct, amazing sound of like the good, the bad, and the ugly, or once upon a time in the West or anything like that. But what yeah. his scores did, they pointed the path as far as like, okay, what type of instrument should I be looking at for to tell my own story here? And that is Definitely. one of the things that was that's one of the things that as I have gotten older, it's it's more been so what do I want to say and how do I want to say it? And what can I even if I'm not I'm not without, you know, mimicking what these composers did, how can I evoke that same feeling that they did? Sure. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was. Yeah. I think. I think that's a good. That's a good. That was a good route for you. And probably more. It make that probably makes more sense in the long run. And I guess now that I'm a little older, I realize that the method I used that was so rigid probably helped me get to what my sound was more quickly. But yeah. but at the same time, stunted my maybe my growth in other areas uh, to get to where I am now. Like I had to make a, probably a lot more mistakes and mm-hmm. um, learning about orchestration and learning about harmonic structure and, yeah. and certain aspects of rhythm because I, yeah, in a, in a way like secluding myself and trying to put myself in a vacuum uh, caused difficulties, but, but initially did help me just in my journey. I, I don't think most people would probably take that journey of, trying to seclude themselves that way, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. but I, but that totally makes sense. And that's where having the formal training, I think could, especially now 
could have helped me develop certain aspects of my music more quickly. Yeah. Um, but you know, but that said, it was, I don't regret it. And it was just what I felt at the time. And so, mm-hmm. uh, what Eric and I were both going through trying to create music and having these visions and ideas of things that were new and that were not uh, of the mainstream, but could possibly be, uh, just different ways to tell stories because he comes from experimental animation. And I met a lot of the people at CalArts that he was studying with. And I got exposed to a lot of alternative cinema very early. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of experimental animation, but also live action films. Um, and I saw some crazy stuff kind of early, like Tetsuo the Iron Man when I was like yeah. 14. <laughs> it's a crazy Japanese film. Yeah. Um, so I think my brother helped me get off the mainstream way. I think I would have been a little bit even more populist in my sensibilities as a composer until I watched some of these movies and thought of creating my own sounds with synth, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, not heavy programming, but trying to think of new ways to tell stories. And it's funny because I have, I, I guess I compartmentalize it, but my film scores and symphonic music is more populist and very e- easier to, to listen to, um, has a broad appeal in a certain way from what I understand. Uh, but then the other aspects of the music I've done for art installations and art shows is, totally experimental and mm-hmm. very like, sound sound design driven and uh, kind of uh, it's strange the way my mind works when I'm composing that kind of music. It's definitely not the same methodology. It's just dealing with the sounds themselves in strange mm-hmm. shapes and strange forms that are not structured and come structured later on, but dealing with a lot of happy accidents of with sound effects and instruments. Um, and I kind of have kept those separate. My experimental music, which I have plenty of that, and my symphonic music. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, that that said, it was nice to have a, 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 an older brother who was a filmmaker. Um, not you know that helps a lot with doing music for all of his early films and forming my own you know mini canon of film music mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's like I I think ultimately. Ultimately, there's no one right way to get into composing. I mean, everybody's journey is different. I mean, the the journey that you went on is is just one of those. It was your journey, and I think it it definitely you know it worked. Ultimately, it worked for you because one of the I I feel like your music is just as important to the success of Imagination and Glitch in the Grid and Apocalypsis as the images that Eric's putting on screen. And mm. that's that's the that's the that's the best possible scenario for film music. And I mean, you brought sure. up Danny Elfman earlier, where it's like he was he was a rock artist, and it's like Oingo Boingo. If you've listened to Oingo Boingo, you know that it is not like traditional rock, but the way yeah, he exactly. came to film music is completely it it completely defines his his sensibilities and his sound and you've seen that evolve over the years. And so I, I think, you know, just because one person comes from a more traditional, uh, you know, background of studying music versus one that's self-taught and just sort of, you know, and sort of, there's no one right way to do it. And I mean, I, I feel like there, there's value in any way you do it. I mean, there really is. Sure. Yeah. And film music is something that is so 
it's a relationship between the composer and the director, primarily that symbiotic relationship, mm-hmm. and not something you necessarily do really study for, because um, it could mean it could mean one note it, it correctly placed or one instrument correctly placed in a scene, um, and it's yeah, it's not the merits of the music itself; uh, it's how it marries to the visual, and uh, and also if you can make it memorable at the same time, you've done a yeah. great service to the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Part of that self-education was doing dozens of short films there, and then finally starting the feature-length films. And I've contributed music to, to other short films from other filmmakers and had uh, beginnings of opportunities for feature-length films, but uh, there, was always, there was always something like the film didn't get made or other things that happened. Um, uh, that said, it, it's, a, it's still a pleasure to do film music, but I, I found that Kind of, I don't know if this is switching gears, but the symphonic music I've created. Well, actually, I, I wrote a symphony that was recorded in 2015. That began just because I wanted to create music that stood on its own legs, that wasn't just attached to a film, wasn't right. just a three, four minute segments, but something that told its own story and didn't need a visual component. Um, I think that was just the restlessness of not feeling like uh, I'm a composer, but am I really, am I really composing music? Like, can I create something yeah. that doesn't have to end after, you know, a cue? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that began another aspect of my life to where I'm, I'm actually wrote my first opera. Um, and I'm still in the second draft of some of the scenes now, but, um, uh, that, that's another subject obviously, but, yeah. um, that my journey as a composer has actually moved, started to move away from film. Not that I wouldn't, work and uh, on a film but uh into theater i did music for a play mm-hmm. and it's just funny how it, it's naturally evolving in yeah a different direction <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, where, possibly that could help <laughs> where where can uh people find your music uh well it is all on spotify and itunes and platforms like that um yeah the, the opera uh, is still i had a sort of lab concert which is on a segment on Vimeo, but uh, prior to that, everything else is just under my name, Jeffrey Lizer, including the summit, my uh, symphony, which yeah, it was recorded in 2015, came out on a small UK label, but um, that that's um, you can find that through just the rest of the score music that's out there. Okay, uh, under my name, yeah. All right. Um well let's let's go to your featured collaborations with uh your your brother Eric um mm-hmm. with Imagination Glitch and the Grin and Apocalypsis. When yeah. you guys when Eric um when you guys start to think about a project, um how quickly how quickly are you starting to think about the music that you want to do for that uh, film for imagination it was uh, especially unique because I started creating music at the inception of the idea of the Eric had mm-hmm. um, and I was I created about five times more music than is even in the film that was a special circumstance that we never we never had that much time or I never had that much time of creating music inspired to the project during the process mm-hmm. as imagination and uh, critics have probably praised that score of mine over uh, the others. I mean, I, uh, I thankfully have gotten positive reviews for the films, for the scores that I've done for all of our films. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I can only really credit that 
to the fact that I was able to have a ton of space to develop a lot of different cues and a lot of different sounds that I could, I could run by Eric throughout the process, get his ideas and then create more music and then just edit and edit and edit to where I, I honestly had probably 40, 50 cues to pull from <laughs> for the actual feature film. Yeah. And I was able to form, form another score just off of that material. And I think that's, that's why I'm personally probably most proud of that score because it was so eclectic, but the film was eclectic, so it sort of just mm-hmm. made sense to to, uh, to form the music that way. Um, and on the other films, like Glitch in the Grid, it was half and half. Probably half the music was created, at least half the music during uh, production, and half in post. And then mm-hmm. Apocalypse was probably more like, you know, 60-70% of the music was done after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's progressively been more traditional uh, but never 100% where people hire a composer at the end of the process. Yeah. I mean, if you can bring in a composer as early as possible, mm-hmm. it can be really beneficial for a film. Um, you know, some people, I get, I suppose, would could work off their first instinct for a scene, and that could work. But if it doesn't work, then you're stuck with a really tight deadline. Um, and good things can happen in deadlines, but you could still miss the boat on the, on truly processing uh, the film on, uh, you know, uh, mental levels and uh, emotional levels, uh, and really uh, get your wrap your head around what's going on with it. Mm-hmm. Well, and so I, yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say for imagination, it was the first time I wrote for real instruments. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a little over half of the film is uh, synths and virtual instruments, but a fair amount of it is uh, either a hybrid or outright real actual instrument. So I, I wrote, um, I was using uh, musicians at CalArts, you know, some string players and wind players. Mm-hmm. And that really elevated the score as well as the fact that um, the two main leads in the film, uh, Nikki and Jesse, the twin, the twin girls, mm-hmm. uh, sing, sing the song that's in the film, the, uh, the font, Albino font. Uh, and that was really a special experience to get them in the studio and record that because they were incredible. Their voices already were synced almost perfectly. They learned that piece on the spot without even looking at a score. They just had the lyrics and I, I hummed the melody. They just perfectly got it. So it was more than just a film score. It was that since I was part of the whole process of the film. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's like, I, I, you know, and I think part of, I, you know, and it it doesn't necessarily surprise me that more and more of, especially when you're looking at those three films, more and more of the music has been done in post because I I think part of one of the things that's kind of interesting about that trilogy of films is that it's gotten each each progressive film has become more and more of a conventional narrative. Imagination sure, sure. is more like a tone poem. It's, yeah. It really does come off more as a tone poem than a straight line narrative, and that's one of the things Absolutely. that that's one of the things that definitely had an impact on me when I watched it uh, two thousand in two thousand seven, and I I so it doesn't surprise me at all when you're when when you say that so much that gradually is gotten more and more in post production as far as the. Uh, Music goes because I mean, well, the the narrative process of the film has gotten more and more 
closer to traditional narrative. But the music always does play a uh, fascinating part in uh, each of those films, I think, and getting you into the emotional emotional headspace that those films are putting you in. I think that's one of the things that's been so impactful for me, having watched all three of the films and actually having watched them twice now because I watched them... uh, so we could, so Eric and I could talk about them last week, and mm. uh, just, and um, it was, it's just one of those things where the the music is such a big part of that, and it's because of yeah. the fact that it really, be, and you know, it it goes hand in hand with the experimental nature of the images, and mm. that's that's mm. one of the things that really. Am uh, captivated by when it comes to watching those films. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I'm glad that that experience. You know, as you know, as a composer, when you're writing music, you want people to share your experience you've had, and it, everyone wants to be known and understood, including artistically, um, even if they say they don't. You know, um, uh, and it's it, it's impactful to uh, hear that um, because. You know, the, the films, it was tough to uh, gauge the scope and of how far they got. Um, and as we realized throughout the years that especially imagination got way further than we thought, uh, not necessarily uh, how much money it made, but uh, our distributor, Vanguard, uh, who distributed the, uh, every film except Apocalypse, mm-hmm. which is an indie can, um, uh, they were able to really reach the video market before everything went online yeah and we, we had certain really special experiences uh, for example up in northern california we're from santa rosa and it was somewhere in the sonoma area we went to a small video store and someone had made a, a display of imagination they did like printed things and like made a cardboard structure for the mm-hmm. film just as a, a fan of the film and so we had no idea we walked into the video store and saw this display and it was it was more incredible than you know having it, you know, a million views on YouTube nowadays, you know, like those, that physical thing, yeah. that, that real experience of seeing that it really touched someone as well as multiple to, um, Eric, I think especially was hoping that the portrayal of, uh, of autism was, he was, he did a lot of research and he was trying to be very sensitive with that, especially because there's also the girls having these visions and imagine, imaginative element. Uh, we got multiple uh, emails from uh, mothers of autistic children saying, "Thank you so much for making this. This is I totally got it. I took my this one time in Portland uh, when the, where the film was playing in one of uh, one of the theatrical screenings. Uh, we we spoke to a woman who had brought her autistic child and and had a conversation about that. Um, so to, to connect on that level was I think very impactful for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well as well as the fact, the strange fact, this was a lot later, probably more like four or five years ago, that uh, a sponsor of mine was visiting Cambodia, and apparently the film was widely uh, distributed illegally, you know, uh, bootlegged, mm-hmm. um, and there was mass production all over. Like it looked like all it was, it was all over South Southeast Asia uh, regarding how like beautifully done the materials were like this wasn't just like printed from the internet. it was like a semi-holographic cover beautiful artwork <laughs> they did a whole new dvd menu and it looked very mass-produced 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though, again, it's not not that we saw the money, but that the film was dubbed into like four or five languages, mm-hmm. uh, including Mandarin. And uh, it's kind of incredible that it was able to have a life of its own, this, this yeah. micro-budget indie film. So I kind of just tell that whole story to illustrate the point that when you have these personal connections um, with real people, it, it 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 makes you feel like it makes you feel understood and makes you feel like uh, what you're doing is actually having some important aspects on someone's lives. Because mm-hmm. I know my life has been changed by amazing art that I've experienced or heard, and it's helped me have hope for my own projects. Mm-hmm. So that's a long-winded, long-winded. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is that's one of the things I like about uh, doing interviews uh, with the with filmmakers and the fact that it's like I can, you know, I'll hear a uh, story like that and, you know, I it it resonates with me and it resonates with me because of the fact that it's like that's it's that's one of the the most rewarding things about creating art or creating anything really. And that's mm. just the, the personal connection that you might get with another individual because mm. of that thing that you did. And, yeah, um, and, and hearing, hearing that type of story and that, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating story. And it's like that when, when I first, when I first, uh, watched imagination in the couple of years after that it's like i you know it's like i didn't realize just how expansive the world of sort of micro indie film was right and just just being able to experience films like the ones that you and eric made and other filmmakers have made that that who have sent me those it's like it it gives me it gives me such a larger picture of not not just the world in general but the world of film and there's so much more going on in film that the mass audience just is not aware of and it's really unfortunate but at the same time it's like you you it it makes it more it makes it more worthwhile to be able to see movies like Imagination and Glitch in the Grid and Apocalypsis where there's some there is something deeply personal there. And that's mm-hmm. something you're not necessarily going to get uh at at a multiplex. And that's mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that's been so rewarding for me over the years in uh Watching films like the ones you you and your brother have made. No, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, um, and I and I can say I've I've had that experience with filmmakers I've discovered as well, and whether it's domestic or international films that were like really obscure, mm-hmm. and you come across it, or even films that aren't necessarily obscure. I I worked at a few. Well, I worked at a video store, um, a mass one like Hollywood Video, but they had a really good form like VHS section yeah. right before VHS like petered out. And on my own, I just, cause I didn't go to film school. I, I, I discovered, you know, Ingmar Bergman and, and, you know, Fellini and a lot of those people who are famous. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but I, then I started watching all of their films, like sort of anthology. I, I think I'm a lot more obsessive about 
filmmakers than I am about composers, which is strange. <laughs> like I have to see all their films. <laughs> um, but just to have an experience of discovering something on your own and because that was still uh, early internet um, and I wasn't basing everything off Rotten Tomatoes at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't just basing it off, yeah, how how broad the film, what film festivals it's been in, but it was a little, a little bit more pure where I just, literally wanted to keep watching those movies, whether they were good or not. I wanted to go backward in time with that filmmaker mm-hmm. and have that shared, shared experience almost where I felt like I knew who they were. Um, and I have to say that uh, I worked at the Criterion Collection for six years, and a lot of my job was just watching movies, uh, yeah. looking for, for digital and things like that, like a lot of quality control stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, watching literally hundreds of films, like in a lot of really obscure films that – were only on the Hulu platform before um, that sort of phased out for Criterion. Yeah. Um, but um, there were a lot of films, especially Japanese films, that were never restored and released by the Criterion Collection, but were just thrown online on their Hulu channel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that had a profound formation to me as well, like whether it was some obscure Czech film or, or Japanese film or something like that. gave me a broader uh, view of the world and Kind of, kind of, hopefully, instill more empathy for other cultures mm-hmm. than I feel like I had empathy for other cultures. But when you really are going through the world, seeing these stories told, mm-hmm. large and small, I think it can increase your empathy um, for other people, socioeconomic status, you know, uh, obviously culturally and racially, like to to see how how other people experience life and look at life. And I think that's where films can be so vitally powerful. Like as you said, beyond the multiplex, and I, I watch you know those films as well, and I appreciate those films. There's a lot of craftsmanship in them. Um, but yeah, when you come across something, uh, you're really seeing through someone else's eyes, and it can, if you allow yourself, that can really make you a broader scope person. So mm-hmm. I hope that has had that effect on me through. A, Especially at Criterion, where I could, I'd literally watch films for my job, which was kind of a dream job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when when Eric told me that you had uh, worked at Criterion, I'm like, oh, that's, I, I I'm jealous of that. <laughs> that, yeah, that it would was be, amazing. Yeah, that that would be, yeah, like like you said, it would be a dream job. Um, but uh, what what are some of your, if if. I mean, we already talked about uh, Danny Elfman. We already talked about uh, Miyazaki's mm-hmm. films. Uh, mm-hmm. What are what are some of your favorite uh, film soundtracks? Uh, film soundtracks. Um, I oh, for you mean individual film soundtracks? Um, yeah, individual. Yeah, films. I mean, or like a, if there's a series or something like that. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of specific films. That really, that James, you know, really James Horner's score for Legends of the Fall. It's like this lush, beautifully romantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you could say like maximal Hollywood score, but I, I, I find it resonates on a deeper level for me. Um, that film, it's a, it's a beautiful melodrama. Um, yeah. I, my brother and I connect with it a lot, and it's, we're almost embarrassed to tell people because it's like this major. Brad Brad Pitt vehicle, <laughs> but if you watch the film, there's a there are a lot of multi-layer things happening. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of elements of grief and uh, forgiveness, and and, and and all the all the raw emotions of going off the war is a sort of side story. Um, the relationship between the three brothers is sort of 
if you have a brother, you really can connect with it on that level. But what James Horner did, uh, especially the aspect of uh, First Nations, Native American, uh, in, in Montana and Canada, mm-hmm. the way he used those instruments and kind of didn't, I didn't feel like he appropriated them so much as he, uh, he, he amplified the beauty and the mystical quality mm-hmm. because they, I, I did some research on the film and they really, they really did use you know, first nations, uh, actors and paid a lot of respect to them. Um, Ed Zwick, the director. Um, mm-hmm. but that, 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 that film score, which is mostly string, strings driven is I think, uh, it just, it just really uh, moves me. Um, uh, on that maximal level of like pure melody, um, repeating over and over again. Yeah. And then, uh, and another, another one of my favorite films, uh, and I think one of the best film scores in my opinion is the, the minimalist score for dead man. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it's a guitar solo, uh, score throughout the entire film from Neil Young. Yeah. Um, and the way he sort of just like uses basic, uh, guitar pedals and a, like echo, uh, just so another film that has like a mystical quality to it, uh, mm-hmm. um, Jim Jarmusch. Um, that's a wonderful film score. Yeah. Um, and I like a lot of playful scores as well. I should remember his name, but the the composer for most of Jacques Tati's films, like Playtime. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's actually that that film is mostly sound effects driven, which I still consider a film score. Um, even if it's just sound effects, because because I am a sound designer as well, so sometimes yeah. I really react react to the way people do sound design. Um, and uh, I mean, there's so many there's so many composers out there that I'll just return to uh, certain films I remember that they did. Um, but I found I don't I like the way in general that Jim Jarmusch uses music. Um, I, I really like uh, like Ghost Dog, even Ghost Dog, mm-hmm. the way of the samurai, and I think there's some like his hip hop there, which yeah, which is a genre I respect. I don't listen to it as much in my personal time, but I like when things sort of break the mold. Like I think Johnny Greenwood is breaking the mold with what the, what he's drawn from for his mm. PT Anderson films. Yeah. Uh, I think he's breaking the mold there. He's doing things that are more experimental. He's, he's creating beautiful textures. Mm. Uh, so that's those are, that's I guess that's more of a contemporary. You know, again, PT Anderson uses like John Bryan, great composers that yeah. have a, a real knack for the offbeat, off-kilter film score. So, yeah, those are some mm-hmm. examples of, of scores that I, I and many others, I think, respect a lot. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it, it's, you know, you, you, you first mentioned James Horner, and, I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite composers. Uh, Braveheart mm-hmm. is uh, the one of, is one of the music compo- uh, scores that really inspired me to want to compose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um yeah, he he's a composer that he he didn't because of the fact that he used similar motifs, he used similar sounds and instruments throughout score after score after score. He he mm-hmm. was almost undervalued um, while yeah, he was right. still alive, and especially after Titanic. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, the the fact of the matter is though it's like you you listen to something like Legends of the Fall or Braveheart or you know I I just rewatched Willow for the first time in years and it's like oh yeah God, I his, love that score his yeah. score for that is phenomenal and then the music oh, did for yeah. uh, Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock it's like there's there's such a rich 
tapestry of sound that he used in in his scores. And yeah, I right. mean, I, I it's been years since I've watched Legends of the Fall, but yeah, I mean, his his score for that is just it's 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 thrilling as as somebody who loves film music and you you see just how effective it can be in uh film mm-hmm. music. And yeah, Dead Man Neil Young's score for Dead Man is tremendous. I uh, it's it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but it's like I a friend of mine is a big Jarmouche fan and he loves that score as well. And so I, I had to burn a copy of that my for myself just because of the fact that right. uh I you know, I that that score is so fascinating. I am a Neil Young fan. But uh mm. yeah. Uh yeah, do, you, do you have a uh website that uh people can go to? Sorry, I had a cough there. Um, my website is um, it's actually my full name um, dot com. I do have a page on albanofon dot com, but um, my personal website is um, jeffreyrollandlizer dot com, and um, I have bits of my opera um, on there from the recent lab conference um, concerts. All right, and um, also I have you know snippets of my film scores, and I have a link to where you can buy. Uh, other ephemera, things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. All right. And uh, you know, we we mentioned it, or you mentioned it earlier. Your music is also on Spotify and iTunes and sites like that as well. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I kind of put everything on to Spotify, and in 2010, I I put all of my early music up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually have. A lot of a few hundred cues on there, uh, or thereabouts, um, which I like. That you know, I I approach it this way. I see them as memories, sort of time capsules. Mm-hmm. And when I go back in time, I do see that there's elements that are more archaic, but I don't devalue them in my development. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like revisiting them just to just to listen and think about what was I doing at that time, what was I exploring, and so the decision to put it on there was just to have the sort of library where right. if people were interested. I don't expect people to listen to all the music. They can chance upon it. Um, they, maybe the title comes up somewhere and they're like, what is this? It sounds different. Um, to not, to not undervalue those early works, which I know a lot of composers just want to like sweep those under the rug and just say, Oh no, my latest thing's this. And I agree. I feel like my latest thing is always the best thing, but at the same time, I'm not quite sure that's always the case. Yeah. Um, so I, I try to value my early music in a way that's hopefully not like I'm just being absorbed in, in, in myself, but more of a of that's what I was creating at the time. And if people mm-hmm. want to sort of take the journey that they can listen to this music and Spotify, it's an easy target because, I mean, I'm not really getting much money from it, but I like the fact that anyone can stream it all and not have to worry about, um, you know, paying for every single thing that they listen to. Right. Um, and if they want to go to iTunes and download an album, that's great. But I know the way that music streaming music has headed, and uh, I just it would be nice if someone just puts the Spotify channel on and has it in the background even when they hear something. They're like, oh wait, I want to check that out, or mm-hmm. or skip thirty songs until you find something you like. <laughs> but um, but uh, but yeah, I I, was, I had a mixed feelings about putting that up, and another thing was just uh, to have it to have it circulating. Um, you never know wh- who it's going to reach, and I don't have a, a lot of. Uh, you know, followers on Spotify because I was so focused in the iTunes realm for most of my life. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm trying to catch up with the times and uh, 
and uh, probably be promoting Spotify more going forward. Um, but yeah, it's it's sort of just my whole catalog on there. Okay. Um, other than the opera, do you have anything else going on as far as creatively? Well, I had a project that uh, it's a really unique project because it's a private composition I did for an art collector who who has an installation in his house, and I just finished this like sixteen and a half minute piece for his installation. Uh, but it's it's a private piece, and I'm only I'm only bringing that up because I thought it was so unique, and I'm wondering if music will start taking this direction where people commission private works of music for mm-hmm. their, their home and like as if they're paintings. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I also thought about the fact that like a lot of people are like court musicians or composers in their day, the classical, at least in the classical realm. And they were creating music that was commissioned for events or like Kings or, yeah. you know, like certain festivals. And I'm not saying that I'm going to keep going in that direction because these opportunities are very few and far between, but um, that was my latest project, and I found it was kind of interesting to, to say, I want to create music that's like as beautiful as I can possibly make it, knowing that it's going to be listened to by anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped confront my ego a little bit, which is like, oh, well, how much should I really put into this if no one's going to hear it? And, mm-hmm. um, and kind of put, setting that aside and saying, well, would I just create a beautiful piece of music just because, just because I enjoy it? And I do still... That's still the impetus for why I create music is I I do it because it speaks to my soul and it helps me emotionally. It helps me get through life. Um, and as much as I love to share it, because that is usually the end game, um, yeah. this project was very – this project kind of helped on a personal level um, to just go back to the basics of why do I even create music and um, I want to, like, share this generously with, like, even if it's one person or ten people or a hundred that, that I'll try to bring my best to whatever project I do. So there's that. Um, uh, I did music for, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, a play for a Macbeth play, and that score isn't out yet, but I do have all the music from that. I'm not sure what to do with it yet, um, but that will probably be dropping somewhere in the next year. Um, but outside of that, I'm just continuing to work on the second draft revisions of my opera. It's called, it's called Far Travelers. Um, and I wrote the libretti as well, um, storyline. Um, and I'm working with my friend Andre Soto on that, who's um, an orchestrator and arranger and composer himself. Um, and basically we have a draft of the whole opera, but uh, we're working on the scenes and kind of taking them apart. And Andres is doing some great things with orchestration. And we hope to have that the opera completely finished by the end of the year, possibly uh, possibly the next year by early spring at the very latest. Um, and we'll be looking to pitch that to opera companies formally. So that's the next thing to look out for is basically the opera on stage, you know, not, not just a recording, but an actual live performance. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. I, I, I really enjoyed talking to you as uh, one composer to another and as somebody who really enjoys your uh, music for film. It's uh, rare to get a chance to... Talk to talk to a, a uh, talk to a film composer, and um, it's it's been uh, it's been great to uh, get to know you, get to understand your your background, your process, and uh, see see what exactly uh, goes into the uh, music that I've I definitely found so striking in uh, 
Imagination, The Glitch in the Grid, and Apocalypsis. So thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Likewise, it was great talking to you, and I, I really appreciate your comments and what you're doing. And, uh, um, yeah, I just uh, appreciate the opportunity to even talk, talk about uh, creative output. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to thank Jeffrey for joining me on the podcast. I'm glad we were able to uh, get together and talk. Uh, it's rare to really get a chance to talk about music with a composer and a film composer, and that was that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, coming up, there are going to be more podcasts, more filmmaker interviews, more discussions on filmmakers. On Patreon, you're going to get some more from about the book. You're also going to get another uh, commentary that has never been heard um, outside of my ears and when we record it and uh, much more. And I'm also planning on doing some special uh, stuff from DragonCon for patrons. So that is patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. For now, though, uh, my name is Brian Scuttle, and thank you for joining me at the Sonic Cinema podcast. Have a good day. Thank mm-hmm. you.